1: Welcome to today's podcast sponsored by Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Hugh for Hillsdale.com or just Google Apple, iTunes and Hillsdale. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining me live. I am back with Ambassador Nikki Haley. Good morning, Madam Ambassador. Good to have you back on the Hugh Hewitt Show.
2: Good morning, Hugh. It's great to be with you again. Uh,
1: In the aftermath, Madam Ambassador, of the murder of Sergeant William Jerome Rivers of Carrollton, Georgia, Specialist Kennedy Landon Sanders of Waycross, Georgia, and Specialist Breonna Alexandria Moffat of Savannah, Georgia, how would you retaliate against the Iranians?
2: Uh, Well, first I'll tell you, it's infuriating. Um, And let's not forget the two Navy SEALs that we also lost. I mean, you know, I know that as a military spouse, we expect America to have our men and women's backs when they're overseas and that didn't happen and what the fact that that biden and everybody's talking about this now why did it take 160 strikes for them to talk about it why did it take for five people to die to talk about it um this could have been dealt with a long time ago what we need to do is first of all it's not about going hard on iran it's about going smart on iran because we know iran is behind all of this the first thing we need to do is biden has got to put the sanctions back on iran none of this would have happened Had he not lifted them, he fueled all of the money, all of the proxies going into this to allow this to happen. China's given Iran billions by importing their oil. That's the first thing. The second thing is we should take out any of the facilities that where the missiles are coming from. Take out those production sites, take so that we know that they can't go and shoot missiles at our men and women. And then we need to be strategic on this. Take out a couple of IRGC members that are making these decisions. Iran doesn't care about whether they lose fighters or not. They'll just get more. They don't necessarily care about whether they lose missiles. They'll just buy more. What they do care about is if they lose their money and if they lose their leaders. And that's what we need to focus on.
1: Earlier in the program, David Drucker of the Dispatch suggested we hit the drone factories inside of Iran. Senator Cotton has called for striking targets inside of Iran. On that target list, many people have suggested the refineries. Would you strike targets inside of Iran, Madam Ambassador?
2: You know, I would go after the leadership. I think you can hit those targets, but the goal is how do you do this in a way that's strong, that prevents further war? That's the goal is you always want to prevent further war. If you take out the leadership making these decisions, you are, in essence, chilling them the same way that we did with Soleimani, the same way that you do. When you take those out, you're actually really making them Um, mute when it comes to doing anything. At this point, we should expect more increased strikes. So I do think taking those out in Iraq and Syria, where we're seeing that come from, any of those places, we should take that out. But I would focus on sanctions, and I would focus on the IRGC leadership.
1: Now, Madam Ambassador, you mentioned Soleimani. President Trump ordered the killing of Soleimani when he landed in Iraq. How do you expect your decision would differ and your decision making process would differ from that of the former president if you were either of you in the White House?
2: Well, I think first you have to get in front of these things. You know, I mean, I think that what's important is it was right to go and get out of the Iran deal. I worked with the president in doing that and went and got the information to tell him that it was the right thing to do. But it was also right to go and decimate Iran's economy. When Biden went and tried to fall all over himself to get back into the Iran deal, that was a problem. The other thing I'll tell you, Hugh, the big part of this is it's the style in which you do it. I disagree with the fact that Trump went and praised Hezbollah. After they went and called them smart after they went into Israel and murdered all those people. I disagree with the fact that he says he writes love letters with Kim Jong un. I disagree with the fact that he congratulated the Chinese Communist Party on their 70th anniversary. We don't congratulate dictators and enemies, we congratulate our friends. I disagree with the fact that he praised president Xi a dozen times after China gave us COVID. I disagree with the fact that I had to sit down with him and tell him to stop this bromance with Putin when he was like being way too nice to him. I don't agree with that. You have to go and tell countries what we expect of them. It's hugely important. The other thing that I did um, that I would follow through on is after we moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, I was furious. I was happy to take on that fight at the U.N., but I was furious. And I went to my staff and I told them to put a book together. I said, I want you to list all 193 countries. I want the second column to be the percentage of times they voted with the U.S. and against the U.S. And the third column was how much foreign aid we give them. I took that book and I gave it to President Trump. And he lost his mind. He's flipping pages. He's yelling out countries. And what I told him then is stop trying to buy friends. Stop paying off enemies. That doesn't work. When I am president, we will no longer give money to countries that hate America. Last year, we gave $80 billion in foreign aid. We gave it to Iraq, that harbored terrorists that tried to kill our soldiers. We gave it to Zimbabwe, the most anti-American African country there is. We gave it to Belarus, who's holding hands with Russia as they invade Ukraine. We gave money to Cuba, who we named a state sponsor of terrorism. And the one that makes me sick to my stomach, cue, we gave money to China. How weak do we look? We've got to start being smart. This is not about bluster and what you say. It's about how smart you are and how you handle the enemies that want, to, that want to hurt us.
1: Now, Madam Ambassador, your base case, as I understand it, is that you will beat President Biden and former President Trump will not. Would you explain why that is to this audience?
2: Well, first of all, I think that, you know, there will be a, a woman president in America, It's either going to be me or it's going to be Kamala Harris. And I don't want a Kamala Harris for president. So the first thing we have to understand is Trump cannot beat Biden in an election. That's a fact. We know that. Look at Iowa. Look at New Hampshire. He doesn't win independents. No one can win a a general election if you don't have independents. He doesn't win suburban women. He has lost some Republicans who don't like his style. Not only that, 75 percent of Americans say they don't want a rematch between Biden and Trump. The majority of Americans disprove of Trump and disprove of Biden. Both of these men put us trillions of dollars in debt that our kids are never going to forgive us for. And are we really going to say that our only choice is to have two guys in their 80s? We can do better than that. You look at all those general election polls. He does not beat Biden. You look at those same general election polls I'm in. I defeat Biden by up to 17 points. Do you know what does this? Does this argument work with the presidency? That's the House. That's the Senate. That's governorship.
1: Does that argument work with undecideds in the Republican primaries coming up in South Carolina and Michigan?
2: Yes. And it worked with undecideds in New Hampshire and Iowa as well. They want to make America normal again. That's the number one thing that everybody wants to do. And they know that we can't afford to lose this general election. And what I'll tell all your listeners Don't complain about what happens in the general election if you don't play in this primary. It matters. And look, we're going to be okay. I have faith in America. But Donald Trump lost in 2018. He lost in 2020. He lost in 2022. What makes you think a fourth try is going to make any difference? We have to start saying, okay, do like I did. I voted for Donald Trump (laughs) twice. This is not personal for me. I was proud to serve America in his administration. But I don't want my kids to live like this. And we need somebody who can put in a solid eight years and get us back on track. And that's what I'm determined to do.
1: Madam Ambassador, let's move beyond South Carolina. Everyone's focused on that. I know you've got to give above 40 percent there to figure that it's a victory. But what about Michigan, which is on the 27th, just days after South Carolina? What does your organization look there like? And then on Super Tuesday, I'm going to study Virginia and North Carolina closest because they are states that are swing states. How does Haley Inc. work in Michigan, North Carolina, and Virginia?
2: Well, our teams are right now working on those states now. I'm focused on South Carolina. So I'm not a political pundit. That's not the focus that I have. Our goal has always been, how do we continue to grow? We started with 14 people in this race. And we are now a two-person race. We got rid of the rest of the fellas. We had 2% in Iowa. We ended with 20%. We went to New Hampshire. We got 43%. Now, Hugh, what does that mean? Trump did not get 43% as an incumbent. Think about that. He can't win a general. So we got 43%. Now we're going into South Carolina. I have a 76% approval rating. We had 1,000 people in Charleston. We had 1,500 people in Greenville. We had 800 people in Conway recently. I mean, everybody's getting involved. They're getting engaged. And we've got a month to go and show them that, yes, I was a good governor, but I can also be a great president.
1: Uh, Madam Ambassador, in 1976, when he was behind, Ronald Reagan named a vice presidential running mate uh, uh, from Pennsylvania, Senator Schweiker. Will you consider naming a running mate early?
2: I haven't up until this point, only because, you know, we're focused on on. Um You know, the state that is at hand And and taking it one day at a time The other thing is I think that, you know The press would want to just hit at it the whole time So, you know, I want to make sure that when we Pick a vice president, we pick someone Who's strong, we pick a good partner And we pick someone who I can Trust, and it's not going to be about Gender, it's not going to be about race, it's not Going to be about location, it's going to be What do we need to do to make sure that we have a real Strong partnership that can focus On getting our country where we need to be with The economy, getting back to the basics with education, making sure that we secure our border with no more excuses. We have got to do that. Bringing law and order back to our country and making sure we prevent war.
1: Now, partisans like me, and I'm a Republican, we worry about down ticket races like David McCormick in Pennsylvania, Kerry Lake in Arizona. Why would you be better than the former president in getting those people elected?
2: I mean, first of all, look at it. Every one of those polls, I win every single swing state. Every single one. And when you win by double digits like I do, you bring everybody with you. Can you imagine if we have a majority in the House, if we have a majority in the Senate, if we win governorships all the way down to school board? That is what we're trying to do. This is about making sure we win. We have to win. We can't fix anything if we don't win. And so that's what, you know, we'll focus on. And the reason why I pick people up is they're tired of the chaos. We hear it every day. It's not that they don't think, you know, I think President Trump is the right president at the right time. They're tired of the chaos, and chaos follows Trump. What
1: now, Madam pastor, Ambassador, the key question, if you're the nominee, will you invite the former president to give the keynote in Milwaukee?
2: Oh, of course. No, of course. Like, this isn't about shunning him. This is about just saying we need a new generational conservative leader. I have no personal issues with Donald Trump.
1: Now, Brett Stevens wrote yesterday, let's face it, the longer Nikki stays in, the more it helps Joe Biden. Do you agree with that?
2: Not at all. I mean, first of all, we don't do coronations in America. Let's keep in mind, you have to have 1,215 delegates. Donald Trump has 32. I have 17. Only two states have voted. We've got 48 states and more territories to go. This is when has anyone gotten out out of two out of two states. This is us going in for the long haul. I don't care what the political class says. We are not going to listen to the political class. I didn't listen to them when I ran against the longest-serving legislator in a primary in South Carolina. I didn't listen to them when I ran against you know, an attorney general, a lieutenant governor, a popular congressman and a state senator for governor as a Tea Party candidate, I'm certainly not going to listen to him now. We have a right, last question, Madam Ambassador. It, but we do that. I-,
1: I meant to ask this the last time you were on. I meant to ask it at the NBC debate. You are a military spouse. You know better than most that we have a military recruitment crisis. Why do we have a military recruitment crisis?
2: The reason we have a military recruitment crisis is for the first typically when you look at um, those that we recruit we're down 25%. Typically 80% of those recruits come from military families. And for the first time Hugh, parents and grandparents are telling their kids not to do it. And why is that happening? It's happening for a couple of reasons. One, because we don't take care of the veterans that we have. 35,000 are homeless. One in three suffer from PTSD or thoughts of suicide. We lose 22 heroes a day to suicide. And the average wait time to get a doctor's appointment at the VA is 29 days. So you got to take care of those who take care of you. The second reason is they don't think America's got their back. Why would anyone send their child to, to be in the military when 160 strikes have hit our men and women? We have dozens injured. We've lost people, and the president of the United States is doing nothing about it. You have to look and then look at the, the Department of Defense now. My husband, I can tell you, they, they are not focused on the threats of the future. They're focused on all these programs that don't matter. I mean, for God's sake, they have got to stop these gender pronoun classes that are in our military. It's demoralizing them. And get back to the focus of what we need. We've got too many generals focusing on past wars, land, air, and sea. They've got to focus on future threats, artificial intelligence, cyber. hypersonic missiles, submarines. That's what we need to have going forward.
1: Madam Ambassador, thank you for joining me. Keep coming back. NikkiHaley.com, I believe, is the website. Thank you, Madam
2: Ambassador. Thanks so much, Hugh. Great to be with you.
1: Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas joins me. Good morning, Senator. Welcome back. A grim day as the Iranians have killed three American troops. um, Sergeant William Jerome Rivers of Carrollton, Georgia. Specialist Kennedy Landon Sanders of Waycross, Georgia, and Specialist Brianna Alexandria Moffat of Savannah, Georgia. How should the United States respond, Senator?
3: It is grim indeed, Hugh. My condolences go out to the families uh, and the loved ones of those three brave soldiers who were killed and the many dozens who were injured, Hugh. Um, and I think there's several of those still in critical condition today. Uh, may God uh, heal them all and get them back to their battle buddies and their families promptly. Um, Hugh, the only way to respond specifically to this attack is massive and devastating military retaliation against Iran's terrorist forces throughout the region and in Iran itself. Only then will Iran realize that killing an American is an absolute red line that they can never cross again. Remember... Donald Trump in 2020 killed their terrorist mastermind Qasem Soleimani for targeting Americans just a few weeks earlier. In 1988, Ronald Reagan sank half of Iran's navy for mining the Persian Gulf, which didn't result in dead Americans, simply a a damaged naval vessel and injured sailors. Unfortunately, this is the result of eight years of failed policy from Barack Obama and his understudy Joe Biden. I'm sorry, 11 years, eight years under Barack Obama and three years under Joe Biden. Um, they have viewed Iran as a normal nation that has legitimate grievances against America. And if we would simply conciliate with them and appease them and grant them one-sided concessions, then Iran would pull in its horns, uh, begin behaving like a normal nation, and everything would be wonderful again in, in the Middle East. That's not the case. Iran has been a unappeasable enemy of the United States for 45 years. One of the first actions of the Ayatollahs was to take Americans hostage hostage in our own embassy and hold them hostage for more than a year. We have to totally reverse the failed Obama-Biden policy of 11 years and view Iran as what it is, an evil enemy that cannot be placated, that can only, in the long run, be defeated. That should be the policy of the United States.
1: Senator Cotton, Elliot Cohen, Uh, wrote this morning, and it's quoted in news items. I want to read it to you. A different Iran policy would begin by making it clear that the United States was breaking with the failed approach of the past, that it understood Iran's implacable hostility and would henceforth act on the premise that the Iranian regime can never be conciliated. The United States would be characterized by vigorous covert as well as overt support for the strong currents in Iran that oppose the regime and periodically erupt in protest against it. It would respond to attacks by Iranian proxies on the United States and its allies with massive, disproportionate, and above all, lethal attacks. Above all, it would be and appear just as implacable towards Iran as Iran's leaders are towards the United States. In the absence of such a policy, Iran will go stronger and more malevolent, not less. Iran will expand and escalate war in the Middle East and beyond. Changing American policy is not a good choice. But it is the best choice before the administration. Do you agree?
3: Well, Hugh, I think it is a good choice to change American policy for the reasons I outlined. For 45 years, Iran has been implacably hostile to America, and 11 years of failed appeasement and conciliation by Barack Obama and Joe Biden has only emboldened Iran and invited more aggression. I know that many people like to him now, I think, over 160 strikes against American positions by Iran's proxies since the October 7th atrocity in Israel. Don't forget that there were almost 100 strikes against our positions before the October 7th atrocity, Hugh, since Joe Biden took office, and how many times had we responded? Something like four or five. That kind of weakness simply invites more aggression, yet you still see the president and his mouthpieces at the White House podium or on background in newspapers saying like, well, we we want to be measured. We have to be proportionate. we We are afraid that we might see escalation. What we saw over the weekend, he was escalation Iran killing Americans, And there has to be massive consequences for that. And we should never be proportionate when an enemy attacks America. I agree with that. We should uh, be, we should be overwhelmingly disproportionate.
1: And that that, in fact, deters. This is cut number 10, Senator Cotton, a montage of Vice President Harris, Secretary Blinken and two Joe Bidens in the aftermath of 10-7 talking to Iran. Cut number 10.
0: And what's the message to Iran? Don't. It was very important to send a very clear message to anyone who might seek to take advantage of the conflict in Gaza to threaten our personnel uh, here or anywhere else in the region don't do it. What is your message to Hezbollah and
3: its backer, Iran?
4: Don't. Don't, don't, don't.
0: <laughs> I've already delivered the message to Iran. They know not to do anything.
1: They know not to do anything. Obviously not, Senator. Uh, how would you improve the messaging of the White House?
0: Well,
3: well Hugh, I mean, that Joe Biden is weak and pathetic and cowardly. You don't deter people like the Ayatollahs who govern Iran by going on TV and saying, don't, 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 don't. You do it by holding at risk and ultimately destroying or killing the things and the people they hold most dear, like the Revolutionary Guard shock troops. I'm confident that the Ayatollahs saw those videos and were laughing at Joe Biden. And every time, Hugh, every time since he took office, and especially since October 7th, when one of these militias in Iraq or Syria – or rebel outlaws in Yemen shoot rockets and missiles at us and we do nothing, or even if we only shoot back at those militias, again, Iran is laughing at us and high-fiving because they've had a decades-long strategy of using proxies throughout the Middle East to attack us so they can deny that it was them. And what do we do when we only attack Iranian proxies? to you? We validate their proxy strategy. They look at that and say, it's going great for us. Because as the saying goes, Hugh, Iran is very willing to fight to the last Arab against the United States. They don't Tell me about, about the target
1: list, Senator. I've talked about the oil refineries, which has been much discussed over many years because that would cripple their economy. Ambassador Haley said minutes ago on this program, first step is put the sanctions back in place. Other people, like David Drucker suggest hit the drone factories. They're all inside of Iran, though. They go after Iran. I'm not in favor of hitting more IRGC camps because that's, as you said, they'll fight to the last Arab.
3: Yeah, so, Hugh, so there's no shortage of targets that we could take out that would send a message to the Ayatollahs. We certainly should target all IRGC camps and boats or ships. Um, and basis. But there's also other targets that would put immense pressure on Iran. For instance, you mentioned, as has often been mentioned, the refineries, because that is a massive bottleneck in the Iranian economy. One also that is controlled in no small part by the people that run the IRGC, who, all, who are also getting rich off of killing Americans. But there can be no doubt that America will not tolerate Iran or its proxies killing americans or even targeting americans anymore there's a simple test here q for what happens do the attacks stop if they don't stop then joe biden has once again failed he has proven himself of being unworthy of being commander-in-chief for those young men and women that are in the middle east frankly like sitting ducks because he will not take the actions necessary because he is cowardly He is fearful. He broadcasts his fear all the time. And right now, he's starting to introduce his own reelection calculations into the lives of Americans in the Middle East, which is outrageous.
1: Senator Cotton, let me ask you about the, the election calculations. It appears to me that Joe Biden is backing up on support for Israel. It appears to me that CIA Director Burns and Tony Blinken and others are sending one message and one message only quit Israel. Is that how you read it?
3: Oh, there's no question, Hugh, that he's backing up. He's been backing up almost uh, the days right after the strike. But now he's doing it increasingly publicly. You saw stories over the weekend leaked from White House officials that they're now thinking about withholding ammunition and shells from uh, Israel to put pressure on them to stop their war uh, of survival against Hamas. There even was apparently talk of withholding defensive weapons, things like interceptors for air uh, defense systems that it, that protect Israelis sitting in major cities like Tel Aviv and Haifa. These things didn't just happen to you. This is a concerted effort by the administration to put out stories that puts pressure on the government of Israel to halt its war of survival against the brutal, the brutal terrorists that committed the October 7th atrocities. And again, why is he doing that? For two main reasons. First, His party has bought into this crazed worldview that somehow Israel are oppressive settlers, colonialists, in their own biblical homeland. And second, he's worried about what it means for his reelection. If young progressive or Arab-American voters sour on Joe Biden's very tepid support for Israel because they want no support for Israel um, and what it means for him to win in states like Michigan or Pennsylvania or Ohio.
1: Do you think Donald Trump can win Michigan?
3: Absolutely, he won it uh, in 2016. There's no question, he can win it again. I mean, when you look at the um, the embarrassment, embarrassment and, and humiliation that America suffered under Joe Biden, the runaway inflation, the the lack of of job growth in working class jobs in places like Michigan, our wide open southern border that is letting, yes, terrorists from places like Somalia come across the border and just wander around freely until they get arrested on unrelated charges, there's no question that Joe, that uh, Donald Trump can win this
5: year.
1: Last question, Senator. I have a piece at Fox News today, No Border, No Deal. Do you agree with me? No border wall, no deal.
3: Well, as we've discussed to you, the border wall is a, is the visible commitment of an invisible conviction or principle that we will not tolerate illegal immigration. It is a necessary though not a sufficient uh, part of finally securing our border. So we do need to finish the border wall. Of course, we also have have to have the other reforms we've discussed in the past, like reforming our asylum process, putting an end to President Biden's abuses of the parole system. Now, that that said, all these abuses are, are things that he could simply reverse. He does not, as he said, need this bill to pass. He wants this bill to pass. Because he knows that he'll he may be able to disregard many of its key provisions, or those provisions may be weak, and then he can say like I did what Republicans wanted. This is what they blessed the border. Why are they can't paint me against me? Joe Biden could stop the slow motion invasion that he himself set in motion three years ago by himself today if he wanted to.
1: Senator Tom Cotton, always good to talk to you. Thank you, Senator. I'll be right Thank back, you. America. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Senator Roger Wicker of uh, Mississippi is one of our favorite guests. He is a shipbuilder. He is a pro-defense senator. And, Senator, good morning. I am wondering what you think President Biden should do vis-a-vis Iran's murder of our three servicemen.
4: I think he should have done something already about two or three days ago. He needs to hit back. He needs to hit back hard. Uh, He needs to show some resolve. Uh, the uh, the Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate would back him up on this on a bipartisan basis, um, and, and 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 really he needs to inflict um, some um, real uh, pain and and hardship on the Ayatollah and his regime. I don't think they want war, uh, but I think they want us out of there, and and they want to control the Middle East. Uh, if, if the president shows some resolve, uh, I, I think they will um, they'll they'll pull in um, their claws and, and try to be part your, of the community.
1: Your colleague on armed services, Senator Cotton, has called for strikes inside Iran, on Iranian targets inside Iran. Do you agree with him?
4: If Tom Cotton were president, he would do that. If I were president, which is not going to happen, I would I would do that. And, and again, it's the it, it. We need to hit them in the pocketbook, and we need to hit them in their leadership.
1: Now, I will ask. <laughs> I will ask Senator Cotton myself. I would blow up their oil refineries because the impact of that is is far-reaching. What does that sound like to you, Senator?
4: Well, that would hit them in the pocketbook, and and uh, clearly, we've been doing exactly the opposite uh, for uh, the entire three years of this. Biden term. I mean, we, we're actually billions of dollars have uh, uh, flowed in, into their pockets. So, uh, yeah, we, we need to hit them where it hurts and all would hit them where it hurts. Uh, now, Senator, we also now,
1: withdrew the second carrier group. Uh, I know the Navy is near and dear to your heart. Do we need to get a second carrier group back there?
4: Uh, yes, but what part of the problem is we're spread so thin uh, we just don't have a big enough navy and you and i've been talking about that for uh five to eight years or more
6: we, no, we, are, long time. we are
4: not where we ought to be in terms of military strength and i hope that uh, i hope we have a new administration come november and and i hope part of their resolve will be a part of, of president trump's resolve will be to rebuild our military and get us to the point where we were under reagan that is strength that gives us peace.
1: peace. Now Ambassador Haley is coming up next hour. I am unaware. Have you endorsed President Trump already?
4: I have indeed. Yes. Uh-huh.
1: Okay. I didn't know that,
4: but Ambassador our, Haley's our entire, coming up. Uh, our entire statewide leadership in Mississippi, except for the Secretary of State, who has to run the elections and. and understandably bows out of that sort of thing. Well, I I stay in Switzerland,
1: so everyone's welcome here, but I stay in Switzerland. I want want people to understand that. I want to go back to the strikes that we have in front of us. Um, I am not in favor of tit-for-tat. I'm not in favor of blowing up three IRGC soldiers somewhere, but massive retaliation like President Reagan used in Operation Praying Manus. On the scale of 1 to 10, with Praying Manus being 10, and what we've been doing, 1, where's Roger Wicker right now?
4: 10. A 10. Uh, right. But but also uh, what I'd like to do is is roll back the clock and, and not be so timid for the last three and a half years. I mean, uh, what we what we have done on all of these proxy attacks, uh, whether it be the Houthis in Yemen or what's happened in Gaza or um, anywhere else around the world, uh, it has not been strong enough. Uh, uh, Senator,
1: do uh, and, we and, and have the back, money and the munitions to, to even?
4: And I, I have to. I have to say, you, uh, the signal we sent in, in Afghanistan was was seen around the world as a sign of weakness, and it's the sort of thing that has in, invited the next step and the next step to where we're we're now losing troops.
1: I agree that, and I want to ask the key question: Do, do we have the weapons and the munitions stockpiled enough? to wage this kind of a reaction to Iran. I am afraid that we've drawn everything down. You know the actual numbers. Are we in good shape?
4: We're in good enough shape to respond to this. Uh, we're not in good enough shape long term. And and that's why I'm, I'm glad that the supplemental bill, if it is voted on, will contain $3.4 billion for um for Navy industrial base. And um, and, and that's just a, a part of what we need to do. But but our industrial base is not where it should be.
1: But we that's in the supplemental, it, isn't it?
4: $3.4 billion in the supplemental, and, and it's unclear when we'll be able to vote on the supplemental.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's going to get killed because of the border. But I I, I don't want to talk to you about the border. I want to talk to you about what we need to do right now We do have enough to do what you're suggesting right now without the supplemental. I want to close on that. Am I correct about that?
4: Yes, yes, we do have enough to do what we need to do right now, but we need to look long-term very seriously and very quickly. I
1: 100% agree with that. Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi, always a pleasure to talk to you, Senator. One of the smart guys, one of the defense hawks, always got his eye on the bottom line for DOD, and we need him there. Thank you, Senator.
0: Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Admiral
1: James Stavridis, retired United States Navy, former head of Southern Command, former head of NATO, former Allied Supreme Commander in NATO. Admiral, good morning. Happy New Year. Great to
5: see you. Good seeing you. I come to you from the magic city, Miami. I'm down here for some business for a day or two.
1: Enjoy the city. First of all, should Dan Campbell
5: have kicked the field goal? (laughs) I take no position on things as controversial as that.
1: Yeah, I don't either, because the Lions fans will descend on us. Let's go to the very serious stuff before us, Admiral. Um, Sergeant William Jerome Rivers, 46 of Carrollton, Georgia. Specialist Kennedy Landon Sanders, 24 of Waycross, Georgia. Specialist Breonna Alexandria Moffat, Alexandria Moffat, 23 of Savannah, Georgia. They were reservists. They're dead. Thirty four Americans are wounded. What should Joe Biden do?
5: Uh, he should significantly increase the level of strikes against Iranian assets, but I'm not quite there on strikes inside Iran. Let me explain. Outside of Iran, are many Iranian Revolutionary Guards? They are training, organizing, and equipping the Houthis, Hezbollah, Hamas. These uh, are radical groups launched the the strike that killed those three brave American servicemen and women. So I think the appropriate target at this point is a one-to-two-week significant campaign that goes against Iranian guard assets who are training, equipping, and organizing. Alongside, we ought to be signaling Iran that this is the last exit before the tunnel. If this does not stop then I think it is going to be time to launch those strikes into Iran. And, of course, many legitimately are calling for doing so now. I don't think we're quite there. We're very close.
1: I assume that you and Elliot Cohen are friends.
5: Yes, I know him
1: well. So, Professor Cohen wrote this morning, a different Iran policy would begin by making it clear that the United States was breaking with the failed approach of the past that understood Iran's implacable hostility... And would henceforth act on the premise that the Iranian regime can never be conciliated. It would be characterized by a vigorous covert as well as overt support for the strong currency Iran that opposed the regime and periodically erupt in protest against it. It would respond by attacks by Iranian proxies on the United States and its allies with massive, disproportionate, and above all lethal attacks. Above all, it would be and appear, just as implacable towards Iran as its leaders are towards the United States. In the absence of such a policy, Iran will grow stronger and more malevolent, not less. Iran will expand and escalate war in the Middle East and beyond. Changing American policy is not a good choice, but it is the best choice before the administration. Do you agree, Admiral? Admiral?
5: Uh, I I do not in complete uh, agreement with my good friend, Elliot, who's brilliant professor at Johns Hopkins and former counselor at the Department of State. So he knows diplomacy well and security extremely well globally. I have a lot of regard for Elliot. I don't think we are quite at the point of launching massive disproportionate strikes inside Iran simply because that would be a guarantee of an immediate regional war. He and I perhaps disagree on, is there an interim step? I think there is. We've been doing pinprick, uh, tit for tat. That's got to end. That's not getting us anywhere. I think a significant level of strikes against Iranians and their proxies outside of Iran is is highly warranted, is proportionate at this stage. Um, And it needs to be accompanied by cyber attacks, additional intelligence, and messaging to Iran that says, uh, this is it. We are going to strike Iran next. Um, I think they would back down in that eventuality. Elliot may disagree with that, but I think it's worth trying before we launch uh, massive bombing raids into Tehran.
1: Now, Senator Cotton is at the other end of the spectrum. You're at one end, then Elliot's in the middle here. Senator Cotton, quote, Biden left our troops as sitting ducks, and now three are dead and dozens are wounded, sadly, as I predicted would happen for months. The only answer to these attacks must be devastating military retaliation against Iran's terrorist forces, both in Iran and across the Middle East. Anything else, anything less will confirm Joe Biden is a coward, unworthy of being commander-in-chief. I doubt you agree with the last part. What about both
5: inside and outside, Admiral? I think I'm in 50 percent agreement with Senator Cotton, who I like a lot and have had many conversations with over the years about security issues globally. I am in the camp of let's go big, but let's stay outside of Iran at the moment. Meanwhile, I assure you, in the Pentagon, where the pizza boxes are stacking up because no one's gone home for three days, uh, they are developing the longer term campaign plan, uh, sharpening it, it already exists, of course, in Tampa at U.S. Central Command of a an actual series of attacks in Iran. We may have to go there. I would say we still have options outside Iran, but against Iranians. I think that's where we want to be at this moment.
1: Now, Admiral, uh, the target list that's being developed—you just referred to—it's already on the shelf, right? There's a there's a list of targets. What would it begin with inside Iran? Let's talk about targets inside Iran. What would it begin with to be the lowest level of escalation? And what's the highest level?
5: Yeah, lowest would be to go after uh, Iranian sovereign assets that were at sea. That's the functional equivalent of attacking Iran itself. So I would say the Iranian Navy is a very juicy target. You and I are old enough to remember the late 1980s when the U.S. Navy... Responding to Iranian aggression in the Arabian Gulf sank about a fourth of the Iranian Navy. So ships, I'd say maritime platforms, oil and gas platforms. All these are intel collection, command and control nodes. Uh, Then I think you start looking at maritime assets within the territory of Iran. So dockyards, fuel dumps, c two. All of that, I say maritime, Hugh, because uh, in addition to these, the terrible strike over the weekend that killed our servicemen and women, the ongoing Iranian campaign is a dagger directed against the maritime trade. So that becomes a very attractive. And then as you go up, I think the next thing would be to go after munitions uh, facilities. Take away the ability of Iran to build the drones, to build the ballistic missiles, to provide the ammunition. And by the way, it's not just to their proxies. They're supplying them to another terrorist organization known as Russia. So go after their ability to do that. I think that's the next level. And then I think at the very highest end, you go after uh, straight up Iranian military assets, their air force, their uh, defensive air systems. And by the way, I think you begin this with cruise missiles to take out as much of their air defense as possible before you start putting pilots over Tehran. So that's a lot of steps in that ladder of escalation. And I think we ought to work our way up it, not just jump to the top level.
1: Now, Admiral, one of the things I assume is going on in the Pentagon is they're trying to figure out, using NSA and DIA and CIA product, what the Iranian objective is here. From where you sit in Miami, in wonderful Miami, what is the Iranian objective here? I I understood they wanted to destroy the Saudi rapprochement with Israel, and that's why Hamas did what they did on 10-7. But what do they get out of killing Americans in Jordan with Iranian drones?
5: Yeah, let's kind of do this from the inside out. So inside Iran, there is uh, significant unrest, often authoritarian dictators Uh, create external crises in order to kind of rally the population. So there's an internal show the people of Iran how uh, the mullahs can take on the great Satan America. Next level out in the region the uh, Iranians are seeking to show uh, not just Israel but the Arab, the Gulf Arabs Jordan and Egypt as well Um, that they are significant players and they're seeking to intimidate Iraq, a neighbor uh, which has a significant Shia population, again, by poking at the United States. And then third and finally, in the larger global stage, um, they're seeking to, if you will, show off in front of um, Russia, in front of China, in front of Venezuela, Syria. They uh, score points in their twisted view by striking at the United States. So they're getting something out of this. The question is, if we inflict real harm on them, starting with Iranian assets outside Iran and potentially moving inside if necessary, are they going to continue? I would argue probably not. They have backed down before and they'll back down again.
1: Admiral, I want to play for you a montage of Vice President Harris, Secretary Blinken, and two cuts of President Biden. In the aftermath of the 10-7 assault, when he was attempting, when they were attempting to deter Iran from exploiting the aftermath of the massacre, cut number 10.
0: And what's the message to Iran? Don't. It was very important to send a very clear message to anyone who might seek to take advantage of the conflict in Gaza to threaten our personnel. uh, Here or anywhere else in the region, don't do it. What is your message to Hezbollah and its backer, Iran. Don't, 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 don't. <laughs> I've already delivered the message to Iran. They know I'm not to do anything.
1: So, Admiral, we have four different don't, don't, don'ts. The Iranians blew it off. How do you re-up that and make it real? After you strike or again with more words?
5: Uh, I think step one would be to return another carrier to the region. Don't forget, all of this happened after we pulled out the Ford, which was in the eastern Mediterranean, threatening Hezbollah. I think it's time to get a carrier back into the eastern Med. We've already got one in the North Arabian Sea. Um, That can have a clarifying effect on the minds of the Mullahs. Apparently, it did for a time. We pulled the carrier out. The attacks have ramped up. I think that it's going to require not just one or two strikes at this point. I think it's going to require a significant four pronged attack that goes against Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, the Houthi rebels, the three H's, if you will, but also against the Iranian training facilities in Iraq and Syria. And that's going to make the Iraqis mad. Who cares about the Syrians? Uh, they're not part of our team. Uh, but at
1: the end of the day, we're going to have to do Admiral James Savry, no, retired sir. United States Navy. Always a pleasure to see you, Admiral. Thank you for joining me this morning. Stay tuned, America. I'll be right back on the Tuesday edition of the U-Q-L-A show. want well, to remind everyone, a great sponsor of the program is MyPhDWeightLoss.com. Generalissimo went on that program more than a year ago, lost 50 pounds. He's kept it off. And uh, stress eating is not allowed. I don't believe, even though we're under a lot of. Uh, so you're uh, tempted to a,
0: this week, aren't we?
1: Uh, everybody is. I, but, but we don't. They, yeah. I'm sure they give you tricks of the trade to combat that because that's one of the habit. You broke that habit. You're not going by Del Taco or Taco no. Bell. Have not. No. You haven't relapsed. We have
3: not relapsed. And um, that is. A,
1: and it's healthy. It's wise. It's yes. productive. Eight six four six four four nineteen hundred. That's eight six four.
6: This is Dennis Prager. I am excited to announce the all-new PragerTopia Plus. You can listen to my show whenever it's convenient for you, all commercial-free and all on demand. Now with Prager Plus, search topics, guests, and segments all the way back to 2010. And now a truly exciting new benefit, my monthly online video get-together for PragerTopia Plus members only. This is where, for an hour each month, Pregatopia Plus members get an exclusive chance to ask me anything. That's right, anything. It's on video. I'll be talking to you and answering your questions. We may even have a special guest every now and then. I've never done this. Submit your questions for me at Pregatopia.com. This is only available to Pregatopia Plus members. This is our chance to connect like never before. Go to Pregatopia.com or click. Click the banner at Dennis I'm Hugh Hewitt.
1: Sergeant William Jerome Rivers, 46 of Carrollton, Georgia. Specialist Kenny, Kennedy Landon Sanders, 24 of Waycross, Georgia. And Specialist Brianna Alexandria Moffat of Savannah, Georgia. Are the three American soldiers killed by Iran on Sunday. 34 additional soldiers were wounded. Details of the attack have emerged. There was a lapse in defenses around the base, but nevertheless, it was an Iranian drone. uh, From the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. failed to stop a deadly attack on an American military outpost in Jordan when the enemy drone approached its target at the same time as a U.S. drone was returning to base. The return of the U.S. drone led to some confusion over whether the incoming drone was friend or foe. The enemy drone was launched from Iraq by a militia backed by Tehran. I don't believe that. I believe it was launched by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard operating with that militia. It's a very complicated drone. It's Iran, Shahab. It's a big deal that they used it. An American defense official said Monday that the U.S. has yet to find evidence that Iran directed the attack. Well, that's because Team Biden is full of appeasers and they don't want to find it. Sunday's attack signaled an escalation in hostilities against U.S. forces. No, it didn't. They've been shooting at our forces since October the 7th, the same day that the massacre in Israel occurred. We have just chosen not to respond because Biden didn't want to escalate. In the Telegraph of Great Britain, the headline is, U.S. may take several rounds of action for fatal drone attack. Secretary of State Blinken has said on his way back to the Middle East there's more and more on the mix-up that killed, I don't even know what we call it, a mix-up. They fired a drone at our base and it hit. It's not a mix-up. It was an attack by Iran. We failed to shoot it down because we thought it was one of our own but it was still an attack on Iran. It's like a Japanese hero going at Pearl Harbor and not hitting the ship doesn't mean that plane didn't attack Pearl Harbor. Then we've got all the op-eds Three ways the U.S. could punish Iran in the fatal drone attack. David Ignatius, who is the most wired-in columnist in Washington, D.C., made the rounds yesterday of all Team Biden. Biden calibrates his response as a slow-motion crisis arrives. So David Ignatius is relaying, you know, faithfully, he's wired into that team, the blue team, how they've got to be very careful, how they've got to be very cautious, how they have to be very deliberate. They can't upset the Iranians. Uh, If you follow me on X, you will see that last night I posted the contrasting views of what is going on here. Um, The New York Times reporting with three American service members killed and two dozen more. It's actually three dozen more injured. Mr. Biden must decide how far he is willing to go in terms of retaliation at the risk of a wider war he has sought to avoid since October 7th. That's the New York Times reporter, and it's Peter Baker. Very good. In that same article, Senator Tom Cotton, who will be joining me later today, said, Biden left our troops as sitting ducks, and now three are dead and dozens wounded, sadly, as I predicted would happen for months. Cotton continued, the only answer to these attacks must be devastating military retaliation against Iran's terrorist forces, both in Iran and across the Middle East. Anything less will confirm Joe Biden as a coward, unworthy of being commander-in-chief. This morning, Elliot Cohen of Johns Hopkins University wrote, a different Iran policy would begin by making it clear that the United States was breaking with the failed approach of the past, that's the Obama-Biden approach, and that it understood Iran's implacable hostility and would henceforth act on the premise that the Iranian regime cannot be conciliated. Ever, It would be characterized, the United States response, Cohen writes, by vigorous covert as well as overt support for the strong currents in Iran that oppose the regime and periodically erupt in protest against it. It would respond to attacks by the Iranian proxies on the United States and its allies with massive, disproportionate, and above all, lethal attacks. And above all, it would appear just as implacable towards Iran and its leaders as it is as Iran is towards the United States. In the absence of such a policy, Cohen concludes, Iran will go stronger and more malevolent, not less. Iran will expand and escalate the war in the Middle East and beyond. Changing American policy is not a good choice, but it is the best choice before the administration. I don't know what will happen here. I know that weakness is provocative and the appeasement of the Biden administration that began at the collapse in Kabul and continued with words, not missiles, to try and deter Putin when he went into Ukraine, and then by delaying everything that Ukraine wanted, by not getting stuff to Iran, by trying to delay securing the border to get, I don't know, money for blue cities, the crazy deal. I have a very long op-ed over at Fox News today. No Wall, No Deal. That's the title. No Wall, No Deal. If you look for it at X, I would ask you to send it to everyone. It's a very long piece. I went to town. I laid it out. I've held the same position since 2004, and I wanted to be very clear. The wall is different from immigration policy. The wall is a security issue. We need to build the 900 miles of wall. If it's not in the deal, the Senate should kill the deal and walk away. Because the national security depends upon, number one, having a wall down there, and we must patrol that wall. Because it's a matter of time till bad guys come across that wall with the intent to do here what they did in southern Israel. There's a story in the Washington Post which attempts to frame this debate in political terms. It's not a political debate. Will Trump be able to kill a bipartisan immigration deal? It's not a bipartisan deal. There are two to four to maybe ten Republican senators in favor of it in draft. They have yet to see, two. only two of them have seen it, Uh, Senators Lankford and Tillis, good guys, but they're they got round heels on this one. They're going backwards. No wall. And when it comes out, there won't be bipartisan support. It's going to be a replay of 2013 where the bill gets shot down. And any Republican who dares to take it will burn their hand and be forever marked as an amnesty Republican, even if that's not an amnesty bill, because it is less than what we need, which is a wall. Now, if you build the wall first, you can get a lot done in terms of regularization. But it's got to be built first. Other headlines. What do you know? Prosecutors accuse Charles Littlejohn, 38, of purposely rejoining the IRS to be able to, and in fact, act to leak Donald Trump's tax returns. He gets five years in prisons for breaching his trust. I think it should be 25 years. I think it's espionage. When you give away the president of the United States tax returns and you violate your oath, you're doing an act not just against him, but against the United States. And It's just another Snowden uh, off on their millennial driven desire to be significant somehow that they didn't earn. And they ought to be going to jail for a very long time. He's going for five years. He ought to be going a lot longer at Penn. Again, this is a New York Times story. Tension's growing after McGill's resignation. All right, so the left wing has taken a couple of weeks to absorb the fact that they screwed up and they showed their true feelings about Israel, and now they're gathering to try and take back the campuses there. They're afraid of a right-wing takeover, like the Harvard Corporation or Penn is going to become right-wing. There isn't one conservative within a 1,000 miles of these Ivy League administrations. They are the least diverse, most ideologically driven, most. It's all the same people, all the same ideology, all the same nonsensical talking points. I found it very amusing. Nikki Haley taps Wall Street and Main Street to keep anti-Trump bid funded. Ambassador Haley will join me later on the show today, as I hope Kerry Lake will be joining me from Arizona. Not sure about that latter one. It was on the calendar and it was off. And I, and I hope we get it back on. I, I just checked it this morning, but I don't know. Nikki Haley will definitely be here talking about her strategy going forward. I am looking at, you know, what you going to do in Michigan, which which is two days after South Carolina, what you going to do on Super Tuesday. The two biggest t- states on Super Tuesday that I'm watching are Virginia and North Carolina, which are swing states. Uh, there are a lot of other... Primaries that day, but I'm looking at the swing states. How do the candidates do? And then there's a long New York Times planted story about inside Biden's anti-Trump battle plan. It includes Taylor Swift. Really, that's in the headline and where Taylor Swift fits in. The only good news about the country right now is that the same people running the Biden White House are also running the Biden re-election campaign and they're all under 40 and they don't know anything. They really do not know anything. It is a grand group of of music men leading parades down streets. They don't know which way they are going or which instruments they're playing or anything else. It's just fraudulent. And so now they're in charge of the campaign, and they think getting Taylor Swift will decide it. American troops are getting killed in the Middle East by Iranians. Israel's in a war, and they're worried about Taylor Swift. That's Team Biden. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt inside of the ReliefFactor.com studio on FoxNews.com. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, I publish my Morning Glory column. And this morning, its title is very simple. No wall, no deal. It reads, the southern border is a national security threat of the first order, quote. Ambassador Robert O'Brien told me that this weekend, quote, It is where I made my first trip with President Trump after he put me in the job of NSA. We are at risk of terrorists crossing crossing the border every day. And, of course, illegal drugs and human trafficking are directly linked to the border. I don't know any serious national security expert who doesn't believe in securing the border, close quote. If the negotiations underway between Republicans and Democrats in Washington, D.C. on border security, Do not produce a bill that guarantees the rapid construction of a 900-mile wall along passable areas of the U.S.-Mexico border. The bill will not and should not pass the House of Representatives. Indeed, it shouldn't pass the Senate. There isn't any wiggle room here. No set of talking points to avoid the key issue. Is the wall going to get built or not? If not, shut down the talks and let's have a campaign on that issue. Trust the people on this one. Quote, our border is a national security threat. Quote, we need to lock down the borders and do it yesterday. The first quotation is from my Hugh Hewitt's 2004 book, If It's Not Close, They Can't Cheat. The second quotation is from my 2006 book, Painting the Map Red. I've been writing and talking about the southern border since I returned to Southern California in 1989 after the Reagan years, having lived in Orange County from 1978 to 80. The need for a significant barrier, now best known as the wall, has been obvious to anyone within a couple of hours' drive of the border for more than three decades. Border security is a distinct part of immigration policy, but it is the most visible and crucial part of the issue set. It is also the first issue that must be dealt with before any other aspect of the complex set of connecting controversies can be worked through. Serious people with knowledge of the border admit two things. The first is we do not need a wall across the 1,951-mile U.S.-Mexico border. More than a 1,000 miles of that border are impassable to most human beings. The second thing, most people will admit, is that we must have such a wall along the approximately 900 miles of those 1,951, the miles that are more or less passable on foot. The wall must be very tall and made of superb, durable materials can't be speed barriers or a chain-link fence. It has to be the real deal. It would be best if a well-maintained road accessible to the Border Patrol runs alongside the wall. It is also preferable if a second fence exists some distance beyond the wall itself. Defense in-depth is not a high concept. It is a common-sense policy if our nation wants to deter illegal immigration. Serious people will admit the wall is not a and will not end all unpermitted migration across the border, but that it will indeed significantly reduce the flow of immigrants. Serious people will also admit that tunnels will be dug underneath it and holes cut through it, tunnels that have to be detected and destroyed and holes that will have to be repaired. Technology will greatly enhance the effectiveness of the wall, of the wall as would a significant increase in the number of Border Patrol agents. The U.S. also needs a significant expansion in the number and capacity of detention centers for migrants entering the country under any circumstance. A big jump in the number of administrative law judges adjudicating a massive backlog of immigration cases and an overhaul of the legal immigration process. The country needs a lot of things. But first, it needs a wall. The wall has to be first because it is both the proverbial tourniquet and a much-needed signal amid all the noise around immigration. The wall would be the visible expression of an invisible conviction that a country must control its borders, and the United States is committed to controlling its border. Finland is building a wall on a large part of its border with Russia. Turkey has built a 515-mile wall along its border with Syria. Almost a decade ago, Hungary built a wall along its border with Serbia and Croatia. Two decades ago, Israel built a wall in the Jordan Valley, the West Bank Barrier, which all but ended suicide bombings which had plagued the Jewish state during the Second Intifada. The Massacre of 10-7 occurred after the terrorists breached a fence between Gaza and Israel. It is a certainty that the new fence will be built, and perhaps two or three, and that they will be stronger and much more formidable. Fences and walls are only as effective as they are well built. It then goes on to the history and the effectiveness and the fact that 52% of Americans agree with us and 91% of Republicans, 9 out of 10 Republicans, want the wall. So I would ask you to go to foxnews.com, to the opinion page, find Hugh Hewitt or Google Hugh Hewitt and Fox News. It says no water, no ball, no, 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 board, no wall, no deal, no wall, no deal, and send it everywhere.